all these things having gained approval through their faith did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us they would not be made perfect and that is Hebrews chapter 11 verses 39 to 40 and welcome back ladies and gentlemen to another episode of Bridged Radio and we're coming at you from the great state of Texas I am your host A.W. Varilla and next to me Steve is not here he is uh, out this week uh, doing ministry stuff but uh we are super excited, though, for our guest that's going to be on today. But before uh, we introduce uh, our guest, he's in studio today. Uh, we're just going to give you an update on everything that's going on with the building. Um, we are almost done. We probably have about a month and a half to go to finish off the building. We're super excited. Uh, again, thank you for our listeners who have given to the ministry uh, that that you know without you guys uh we couldn't do this i mean we know that god used you guys as a means to help out the ministry in purchasing this new building and uh we're looking forward to all the things that god has in store for bridge ministry you know we're you guys already know that we're working on a ministry teaming up with mints uh again we're super excited to work with the university with all the college students and uh yeah so we're we're super 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 excited about that and please don't forget to subscribe to apple android google google and stitcher radio and please visit our website at bridgemenlaredo.org and we are also now on spotify all right well ladies and gentlemen i'm going to introduce to you dr frank Ben Benoy, right? Um, he is a pastor, missionary, uh, seminary seminary professor for thirty six years in Spain with his wife and children. And uh, we're going to introduce you right now to Dr. Frank Benoy. Uh, Frank, welcome to Bridge Radio for the first time. And uh frank is in in studio with us i got to meet him today and we're going to be talking about the subject of the spanish reformation um when uh, i heard that you are an expert in this area uh i was excited yeah. and we're going to be doing a podcast in spanish as well about this information because one of the things here in laredo uh we know that the reformation and this is my answer please correct me uh uh dr frank uh it never came down here uh, to Mexico or South America is my understanding, or not completely. Yeah, not completely. It didn't come down uh, at least in the 16th century, but okay. after that it did when when um, uh, we could say Protestant uh, missionaries began taking the gospel to Latin America uh, at the end of the 18th century mm -hmm. and then into the 19th century and the 20th century, obviously. Um, and that didn't happen even in Spain until yeah. uh, that you know first part of the 19th century. So uh, there was a little bit of a jump on it in Latin America. But yeah, it's it's been very hard to get the gospel down to the uh, former um, you know Spanish Catholic uh, areas of the mm. world, and and we'll, we can talk about that. Yeah, absolutely. But thank you for having me on. Oh, well, thank you for being here in studio. Uh, but before we begin, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and how God drew you to saving faith? Okay. 
Well, um, I come from a non-Christian family. My, my dad was nominal Catholic. My mom was nominal Lutheran. And to avoid religious wars in the family between uh, her side of the family, his side of the family, we just didn't, you know, hardly ever go to church or do any of the, you know, churchy stuff. And so by the time I was in high school, I considered myself an atheist. And I had, of course, been taught in the public schools all the stuff about, you know, evolution and everything else. And I just like, yeah, you know, God doesn't, that's a fairy tale. Um, but right before I graduated in 1976 from my high school, uh, the Gideons were on campus or mm-hmm. off campus. Actually, at that time, it was illegal to go on campus. They were outside the gates on the public street handing out New Testaments, the little Gideons yeah, New Testaments. Little Bibles, yeah. Right. And I got one of those and, and I didn't believe it, but I thought, well, at that po- point, my mom who had had uh, terminal cancer had converted to Christianity and she was going to an evangelical church and she mm-hmm. was growing in her faith and dragging us to church so we would have to hear the gospel. And I was like, nah, I'm not that. But I said, I'll give this to my mom because she's into that. And so I yeah. saved it to give to her. And I never did uh, wind up giving it to her be- because she, uh, you know, she moved to California and I stayed in New Mexico where I was going to school. Um, I stayed there and um, finished high school and, um, and, and I, that summer of 76, I was going through some difficult times personally. And I remembered what my, the people at my mom's church would always, you know, pound on us. Oh, you know, only Jesus can help you. And oh, you need the gospel for this. And I was like, nah, that's for you guys, not for me. But at that point I thought maybe what they were saying was true and I should check it out. So I read what the Gideon's Bible had to say. And, and it just, it impacted me at that. I mean, you know, to make the long story short, uh, I, I, got, I trusted in Christ uh, one night, got down on my knees by my bed, prayed, and, you know, what some people say is a sinner's prayer, but I just prayed to, to the Lord and said, if you're there, you know, I need to know you, and I need, uh, and what this Bible says, and what the people at my mom's church says, blah, 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 and I trusted in the Lord. I believe that was the night that I was born again, and um, and God started working in my life. I went to college. My second year of college, I, I found a, a Bible uh, church in, uh, in in what's now my hometown, and I started attending church there. They discipled me. I wound up getting baptized, and then they, they saw that I would be fit to help in the church. They asked me to help with the kids' Sunday school classes mm-hmm. and put me under a retired missionary lady who actually kind of discipled me to how to teach. And then from there, they said, you know, you, do, you need to go on the mission field. And they sent me to seminary at Dallas, paid for my tuition to go and, wow. and to get trained, and then they sent me to Spain. Wow, that that that's awesome. I I, I don't do do churches pay for seminary now, or is that something that they used to do? I feel like that I, doesn't. I don't know, have, but I know was, it's expensive. But there was it was expensive then. If you you know we're talking uh, 1982, and the tuition at that time was probably uh, about uh, four thousand dollars a year, oh, wow. um, just for the tuition, and yeah. that's all they paid for. They didn't pay my room and board, my books. I that had to it. do all that, but they paid the tuition, and that was a big big help. And so I got my master's degree at Dallas, and then. Um, and then I went, uh, joined a, an evangelical mission called mm. Team, the Evangelical Alliance Mission, and I was with them for five years. Uh, went to Spain. I met my wife there at the second church that I was sent to, mm. and uh, we wound up getting married. And um, we had uh, we had to come back here for her to study, and so we went to Rio Grande Bible Institute, which is where I had studied Spanish to go to Spain, mm. and um, and she had to do her one year of Bible training down there. And while we were there, our son was born in McAllen. So he's a Texan. Yeah. <laughs> he's yeah, actually yeah. dual nationality. He's Spanish and Texan. Oh, wow. And then we went back to Spain. Uh, but by that point, we had missed the candidate classes with mm. team. And so we had to go under another smaller mission, which we've been with now for 31 years. And um, and we went back to Spain. And then our daughter was born in Seville, which is where we're 
in the area we work is in uh, Sevilla or Seville in the southern part of Spain. And, um, and so we have the, uh, you know, our two children, they're adults now, they're married. And, um, and so uh, we've continued ministering uh, with the Federation of Evangelical uh, Churches in Spain. And uh, that's, I don't know, that's kind of long story short. Yeah. Does, does that cover what you were looking yeah, for? Yeah, that, that, was, that was perfect. No, I think we, you know, we, we do have a international listenership. Okay. So, you know, we, 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 we do have Spanish listeners. And, uh, and uh, so, again, mm-hmm. whenever you go back, uh, you know, look them up. So. Right. Well, or they can look me up <laughs> or if they, they, yeah. they want to. I, yeah, that's, yeah. I, look. I teach at the Seville Theological Seminary, which is uh, just outside the city in the small town of Santi Ponce, which is where the monastery is that Reina and Valencia and all these other Spanish reformers were associated with. And that's where we have our seminary is in Santi Ponce, and they're welcome to look me up there. Yeah, so there you go uh, for our listening audience. Look uh, Dr. Frank uh, Benoit up in in, in Spain if you guys are in the area. So, uh, uh, Dr. Benoit, before we begin, um, this is a subject that we've not talked about Mm -hmm. on Bridge in Spanish or English Mm -hmm. podcast. So we're super excited. So uh, Spanish Reformation. Right. uh, I I am very I'm not knowledgeable on the subject. Right. So you 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 lead the way and right. where where we go with this and and where our audience uh would 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 like to know history and everything because right. they 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 love that stuff. Right. Well, it's it's interesting because the this a lot of people think that Spain was is is Roman Catholic and has always been Roman Catholic since the first century. You know, and that's mm. what the Catholics teach the people in Spain. You know, ever since James the Apostle, you know, Santiago mm-hmm. uh, went to Spain, which is a legend. It's not not you know uh, has no historical or or biblical foundation but uh, they would say since you know the first century Spain has been under you know the Catholic Church in Rome well you know that's not true and and when you study the history of Christianity you see that in the first 500 years of Christianity there were various types of Christianity that existed simultaneously in what was the Roman Empire and like for example up in the British Isles you had the Celtic type of Christianity that was started by uh, not started but it was uh, built up by St. Patrick who was Roman Catholic and yeah. even though he's a Catholic saint but he, he had nothing to do with the Catholic Church and and that lasted three or four hundred years before Catholicism came to the British Isles in Ireland mm. um, which was in the the seventh century and um in North Africa, you had a type of Christianity around uh, what, what had been the Carthaginian uh, Empire, which uh, by the time Christianity came around, Carthage it was still a city, but it didn't exist as an empire. It was part of the Roman Empire. Mm. But you had uh, famous North African Christians like Tertullian and uh, mm. St. Augustine. Yeah. And so those, and then over towards Egypt and down into Ethiopia, you had Coptic Christianity. Mm. And then if you continue from there up through from uh, Israel on up into what is today Turkey, you had the uh, Antiochian type of Christianity that was headquartered mostly in the city of Antioch, where um, Paul and Barnabas started uh, had the church there, and that's where they were first called Christians, all that. And then you go to the Orthodox churches. So you have all these different, and then you had Roman Catholicism in the, in the Italy, uh, you know, the boot of Italy and up into France. So you had all these different Christianities existing simultaneously for several centuries. None of them had authority over any of the others. And mm. in Spain, you had an autonomous Spanish Christianity that wasn't uh, under the Roman Catholic Church until after the 11th century when um, when the Reconquista, the Reconquest came to get the Moors pushed out of Spain because obviously Islam came into Spain in the 8th century mm. and, and they worked several centuries trying to you know reconquer the peninsula. And so all of... Um, 
uh, you had before that you had a Spanish Christianity that was indigenous to Spain, and so you had all these six or seven types of Christianity. No one had authority over anybody else, mm. and um, and then that uh, it, as the Roman Church grew stronger when the Roman Empire uh, fell in the fifth century, the leader uh, for the Western half of what had been the empire in the eastern was the byzantine empire that continued with their emperor for another thousand years but in the west there was no leader except for the bishop of rome mm. and so b people began to look to him not as just a religious leader but as a political leader and 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 actually it was leon the first uh, they call him leon the great um he negotiated a, uh with the attila the hun and with the vikings and people like that who were coming to conquer the city of rome and so um uh, it, 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 you know, the Rome gradually took over all of Western Europe, including Spain, and in, in the end, the British Isles, all you know, up up into the Scandinavian countries, and all, all of this was done over a period of about um, maybe a thousand years. And then you get that gets us up to the 15th, 16th century when the Renaissance is going on, mm. and the Catholic Church has become so corrupt because the popes are basically uh, political, uh, you know, uh, jet setters, and yeah. they they were involved in a lot of uh, uh, illicit activities and people could see this in Christianity. And even during the Middle Ages, some of the popes were very uh, focused more on power and stuff. And so you had these reform movements, these monastic reform movements would pop up from time to time in France, in Germany, in England. And they were trying to reform the church. They never were trying to start a new church. Yeah. And even when we get to the 16th century, Martin Luther, you know, he didn't want to start a new church. He That's wanted right. to reform the church that he knew, which yes. was the Catholic church. Yeah. So that gets us up to the 16th century. And then in Spain, well, the, the things that were going on in the rest of Europe, Spain, knew about that because Europe was interconnected through economic and, and even political things. The Spanish Empire controlled much of what today is Belgium and Holland and, and, um, and parts of Germany and um, parts of uh, Italy. All of that was under the Spanish uh, crown. And so they, they knew what was going on there. And as the Reformation spread from some of the German principalities to these other areas in the Low Countries and over into uh, Great Britain, um, they, they, everybody was aware of it. Okay, and so there, there's a, there was a process. It's not like one day Martin Luther woke up and said, "Hey, I'm going to go out and attack the Catholic Church and start a new church." <laughs> it didn't have that. He was a Catholic. Yeah, he was a Catholic monk, and he was a professor at a Catholic seminary. Yeah, and he was teaching. You know what? But they didn't have the concept like we do today of Catholic Protestant. It was just Christian. And they knew there was, you know, the Orthodox Church still existed, the Coptic Church. They didn't have much relationship with them because they, they had a big split in the 12th century or the 11th, and they separated the Eastern Orthodox churches from the from the Western, mm. more Roman Catholic. Yeah, sometimes when we talk about Martin Luther and the Reformation, we think that it was like overnight and there was like, boom, it was there. And, right. you know, there's a there's a time uh, that's yeah. happening in right. here in the spread of this right. influence. So, right. yeah. No, and during the Middle Ages, there were other reform, what they call them now is pre-reform movements. Mm -hmm. So there were the Waldenses in France. There was John Wycliffe in, in England. And this was in the, you know, in the, in the, in the uh, 12th, the end of the 12th century, 13th century, 14th century. There was John Huss in, um, in the Czech, what's today is the Czech Republic, but in Czechoslovakia there was Huss and the Hussites. You know, Wycliffe had his followers, and and so all of this was. But they never had um, they never had the success that happened when Martin Luther did, and that's because there was a confluence of other uh, other things that happened politically, mm. economically, socially. You had the invention of the printing press by yeah. Gutenberg that happened about fifty years before the Protestant Reformation. So yeah. prior to that, it was really hard to spread your teachings when you have these guys copying by hand, you know, tracts and sermons and even the Bible. But once the printing press was invented, you could just do thousands of things in one day, just, you know, stamping them out, bam, bam, bam. Yeah. And you get it to people over and you could translate it in other languages and get those out. And so that's what happened during the Reformation. And, and part of that had to do with, um, 
going back to the original manuscripts of the Bible, the Greek manuscripts, which went through Erasmus, who was, again, a Catholic monk, but because at that time there wasn't anything else. And, um, and so Erasmus, he, he helped uh, get people back studying, again, the, uh, you know, the, the Greek scriptures. Mm-hmm. And when people saw the difference between what the actual Greek scriptures said and even the Vulgate, the Latin translation yeah. from St. Jerome— um, and they began to see what the Bible says and what the church was teaching and doing. They said, okay, this, there's a huge contradiction here. We've got to follow the Word of God. And that's what, what happened to Luther. He, he, was, um, he was struck by what the Word of God said, and he was convicted by justification by faith and said, I can't earn this. You know? And wow. he'd been trying to earn it for yeah. like 20 years, and he said, I can't earn this. And if I'm saved, I'm saved by grace through faith, and I'm justified, and I don't have to do anything else. And, and that just liberated him. And he started teaching that even as a Catholic priest in his church, his parish, and as a, a Catholic seminary professor in, to his students. And as a result of that, he began to see the abuse of indulgences that were being sold to the poor people telling him if you pay for this with your last you know bit of money that you have to feed your family your your beloved uncle or grandfather is going to be taken out of purgatory and so the the guy who was selling the indulgences in germany he was abusing it and wow. luther saw that and his pastoral responsibility was we've got to stop that so so he he started what's with you know the 95 theses on the church door and that was to provoke a debate it wasn't to start a new religion but then things kept getting further and further out of hand and the spanish emperor who was over that part of germany he Mm. got into it charles v um and so one thing led to another, but all of this that was going on, it, it filtered into Spain because there were scholars down there who followed Erasmus. And in fact, uh, Spain was probably the most, or, uh, I don't know how to say this in English, but the, the most Erasmian type uh, country in mm. Europe at that time. And there were great Spanish uh, uh, scholars and writers who followed what Erasmus was saying, his criticisms of the Catholic Church, the superstitions, and a lot of that was big in Spain as well. And they wanted to reform the church as well. And so, yeah. so you have these kind of, in Switzerland, you have uh, Ulrich Zwingli was starting a reformation there, independent of Luther. Um, you know, John Calvin was influenced a little bit by w- Luther, but then he went to Geneva and um, and had more of the Calvinist type reformation. Luther was still leading the German reformation. In England, you had Henry VIII separated from the Roman Church, not over doctrine, but over he wanted to divorce his wife. Yeah. And um, and then you had some of the the. Um, the British reformers who were following more in a, in a biblical reformation uh, line. And, um, and so that developed into what we, we would have like an Anglican reformation. And so all this was going on in the 16th century and in Spain that filtered down. And, and in the 16th century, you had some very important Spanish writers like Juan de Valdez. And, uh, and of course, Casiodoro, we'll talk about him and, and Cipriano and some of the monks from Santiponce that's near Seville. But there were, um, two key pockets of reformation one was in the city of valladolid and the other was down in seville and, mm. and we i don't know if you want to ask a question on that or i should just keep going you, you just keep going i'm I, i'm literally it's like i'm sitting in a history class and i'm loving this yeah, yeah. by the way because because i don't think a lot of people when you were saying the right. reformation that's going on in germany what's going in germany what's right. going on in uh in in, in britain or switzerland, in yeah, switzerland everywhere. Uh, everywhere and uh again in, in God's providence, I would think that all this is happening at, uh, 
around this time and in right. in a, a lot of this ago as you know right, right, right. all those great reformers that yeah. you just mentioned well and and i should have i get ahead of myself but i should have said that on the uh the verse that you read from hebrews yes that was when i gave you that's kind of the the biblical uh uh, antecedents to, to what we're talking about because the Hebrews chapter 11 is the, what's called the hall of fame of faith. And it has all these great heroes of the faith in the old Testament. Yeah. And the author of the Hebrews is, is trying to encourage those, uh, which most people, uh, believe are Jewish Christians who are being pressured to go back. He's trying to encourage them to hang on to their faith in Christ and not go back. And he's, and when he finishes chapter 11, he says, look at all these great heroes. They didn't get what, what had been promised because God was holding it out for us. And then he, he starts chapter 12 saying, you know, therefore we have this great cloud of witnesses around us. He says, so let us lay aside the sin and the things that hold us back and run with endurance the race that's set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Mm. And so he's talking about a legacy there. There's this legacy um, uh, for believers mm. that at the time when the book to Hebrews was, of Hebrews was written, it was looking back on the Old Testament heroes of faith who had faith in what God had promised. They, mm-hmm. they didn't know anything about Christ as the one born in, in uh, Bethlehem and you know grew up in Nazareth. <clears throat> but they knew that God had promised, and so their faith was in what God had promised. And that was the Redeemer that was going to come. And so the writer to the Hebrews is saying, look, they kept going, and how much more do we have? Now we've got their legacy, but we also have Christ, who's our high priest. And he, I'm, I'm going to give the whole outline of the book of Hebrews. But his argument is saying, we have so much to go on. Let's just fix our eyes on Jesus and keep going. And that's what in church history, I mean, people say, oh, history's so boring. It doesn't have this, it doesn't have that. And I've always, since I was like in, in um, third or fourth grade, my dad was military, so we lived in California at that time. And I remember studying the history of uh, California. They would teach it to us in elementary school, and we'd read about how the Spanish came in, and then about, and then the people for the gold rush, and you know, on and on. But it was just fascinating for me because it was like this huge adventure, yeah. and you're finding out each chapter things change and new new characters come and go. And and to me, since I was like ten years old, history has been a great adventure. Yeah. And some people say, "Oh, history's so boring, all these names and dates." But if you if you look at it that way, maybe it is boring. But if you look at it, these were people who left a legacy for us. And especially as Christians, we look back on those who came in the centuries before. And uh, like I said, you know, the the Reformation of the 16th century wasn't the first one. There had been others that had tried for centuries. And it just, the the political and economical and social things hadn't hadn't come together yet. And in God's providence, that happened right when Luther had his, you know, moment to realize that he was saved by faith in Christ. And then everything started just snowballing. And that got into Spain. And so you had these two uh, areas where the Reformation really took root as Spanish people would travel down to the low, what's the, what then was called the low countries. Today it's called, you know, Belgium and Holland, but they would go down there on, on business matters and they would bring the gospel back to Spain. They would bring back books by Luther, by Calvin. And then some of the Spanish reformers who had to, uh, do or, or move up to those areas and study at Oxford or Cambridge or the University of Paris or any of these other places. And they would uh, hear about it and then they would start writing uh, biblical stuff to go back to Spain. Juan Juan Perez and Francisco de Encinas were two of those. They translated the New Testament into Spanish. That was the first access that people had had in Spanish to the New Testament uh, in the history of Spain. Can and, you just repeat that again, yeah. that part with the translation for in Spanish? Right. Okay, so there were two Spanish scholars, uh, Francisco de Encinas, he was from okay. the city of Burgos. Okay. And around 1540, he translated the first 
translation into Castilian Spanish of the Bible from the Greek manuscripts. He was oh, using wow. he was using Erasmus's third Greek edition. Okay? Third Greek, okay. And so and then after him, about twelve years after him, he died in the plague. Unfortunately, he was only like thirty years old. I mm. mean, this guy, if he'd have lived, you say, Lord, why didn't you let him live another ten years? But it, he died when he was like thirty or thirty-two. And um, and then another uh, a Spanish uh, reformer who had left Seville in fifteen fifty and had gone up into uh, Geneva to be with Calvin and uh, and in France and other areas. His name was Juan Perez de Pineda, and he did a second translation of the New Testament based mostly on Encinas' work. Mm. Um, and both of these guys were helped Cassiodoro uh, with his translation when he was being chased around Europe for, for 10 years while he's trying to translate the Bible. And, and so, uh, I mean, there's, I'm getting ahead of myself maybe, but anyway, there were these two centers in Spain up in Valladolid and it was run by the, uh, the Casalla family. Okay. And that was rubbed out by the inquisition in 1557. And then there was the big center in Seville. Cause up in Valladolid, there was a group of maybe a hundred or even up to 200, but in Seville it was all 800 to a thousand believers were arrested when the inquisition found out was going, what was going on. But just prior to that, like, you know, several months before that, the uh, the monks at the monastery in Santiponce, the the monastery of San uh, Isidor, um, they fled because they knew what was going to happen. And so, at different times and and at different uh, you know different dates, about a dozen of them fled to northern Europe. Most of them went to Geneva. Some went into uh, London, and others went uh, to other cities. But they fled because they knew the Inquisition was going to come get them. And wow. and with that group. There were three very important Spanish reformers who knew Juan Perez because he had been in Seville working for about 10 mm. years. And Seville was a big center for Erasmian thought. And when the Inquisition uh, found out what was going on, they made it illegal for any of Erasmus's books and writings to be. And they, they took them all over Spain. They got rid of all of Erasmus's stuff. And that was about 10 years. That was in the 1538 or something like that. And so they got rid of all of Erasmus stuff. And... Um, and then when they found out that this group in Valladolid was there, they got rid of them. But because that group had connections to the group in Seville, I mean, they're doing all this detective work. They had yeah. a spy network. And so oh, they wow. get down into Seville and um, and they find out about the, the group there and they start arresting people. And they had so many people to arrest that they couldn't put them in the prison. They had open uh, temporary prisons. But that's where the castle of the Inquisition was in, in the, the area of the city of Seville that's known as Triana. There was the castle of the Inquisition was there. And that's where they had the the worst stuff going on there was actually a book written by uh, a, a, a civilian uh evangelical spanish christian who escaped from that castle and he got up into northern europe and he wrote a book on it it's called the arts of the inquisition mm. and a lot of people say that the the name is uh, pseudonymous um and they say it was Casidoro, but he was never in the prison. Mm. Others say it was Antonio de Corro, but he was he was only in the prison because his uncle was an inquisitor, and sometimes he would have to go in to try to interview uh, prisoners and stuff. So he knew a little bit, but he had never escaped from the prison. And so this book is a, is a great reference. It was a bestseller in Europe when it was published right right before, I think it was right before 1567, like two years before Reina was able to publish his Bible, which is called the Biblia del Oso, the Bear Bible, because mm. uh, it has a, 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 a an etching on the first page of a bear getting honey out of a tree, and it has, and that was from the publisher in, in Basel, Switzerland, mm. who had that as his uh, seal for his publishing company. Um, but anyway, um, uh, the uh, the Spanish reformers had to flee, so the Inquisition, and, and they, in Seville, they got uh, just 
Bibles, New Testaments, books from Luther and Calvin and all that kind of stuff was, was uh, and we've got the lists of this because we have the, the register or registry, the records of the Inquisition. And we can go mm. back and study a lot of this stuff. And even a lot of the, um, the what they called were autos de fe. It was like a trial. Okay. Mm. And we've got notes and stuff because the Inquisitors were very meticulous to take down everything that the prisoners said and everything they did and what the Inquisitors told them and trying to convince them to go back to the Pope and the, you know, the Catholic Church and all. And so we've got a lot of information out there and, wow. and it just keeps getting more and more. It gets found as people begin to look for it. But see, for so many centuries, Spain didn't want anybody to know that there had been a Reformation there. They were the pure Catholic country and everybody else were the ones that were heretics. But, but, and so they covered it up wow. and, and they tried to erase that history. But because these guys who had escaped knew what had happened and they were writing about it in Spanish, in English, in German, in French. And, and this book, the arts of the inquisition became a bestseller. It was translated in the first five years. It was translated into Dutch, German, French, English, Portuguese. I mean, everything except Spanish. It didn't get published in Spanish until the 20th century. But it was coming out of Spain, right? Well, the person who wrote it had been there and he knew the evangelical community in Seville in the 16th century. Oh, wow. And he gave stories about them and, and he, he got the records. And this is why some people think it was a, a joint effort between <clears throat> Antonio del Coro, Casidoro de Reina and whoever the author was. Um, and, and there's some you know debate about that, but they think that they've narrowed it down. At least some of the people I, I know in Spain that are historians, they think they've narrowed it down to uh, one of the uh, um, uh, religious uh, monks or priests from Seville who was related to the monastery in Santi Ponce and to the community in Seville. And he wound up escaping up into Europe uh, like the others. But he had to escape from the castle of the Inquisition. And that's why he knew and he could write in his book, excuse me, what some of those, what they call the arts. And he doesn't mean arts like something nice, but he's just saying what they, what were the methods yeah. that they used to try to get people to confess and to recant. Is, is that castle still there? Mm, it, it was, um, it was destroyed in the 18th century okay. because it flooded so much when the Guadalquivir River that goes through Seville floods. Okay. It got flooded so much and it was so damp and humid and everything that it became like a, um, a focal point for uh, plague and other types mm. of diseases. So finally they had to tear it down. But where it was, there's a museum there now today in Seville. It's called the Museum of the Inquisition. Wow. And they still have the foundations of the castle and some of the lower rooms, you know, of like dungeons and storage rooms that you can go in and visit. And they've oh, done wow. a brief, you know, history of it. They people, in fact, there's evangelical uh, historians that take groups on tours in Seville and they follow, they call it the, the route of the Inquisition. And they take you from the castle in Triana across the Guadalquivir River, uh, the bridge, the Triana Bridge, down to the cathedral downtown where they would have their sentence pronounced on them and then out to the area where they would burn them at the stake. Mm. And you can follow it. It's like a two-mile route and they would you know explain things along the way. And so, yeah, there's, it's not there anymore. The castle's gone, but, but, you but can, many of the buildings that existed at that time in Seville, the cathedral and all the other stuff, they're still there. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. So you can still get a lot of history from what's in Seville. Wow. That's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. I, I love history and uh, mm -hmm. I, I always been a big fan of history. So, you know, you being on this podcast right now and just right. thought, it, 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 again, like I said earlier, is exciting because mm -hmm. I, I, I didn't know this and I'm sure our audience will too. So, um, so now, where where are you going to take us now uh, from from where we're at right now right. In, in this point in history? 
where do we go next now? Well, we we could follow uh, Casiodoro and and Cipriano okay. uh, when they escaped from Seville. Okay, and we could um, go up to northern Europe and see what uh, uh, um, Cipriano stayed in Geneva, and he stayed associated with Calvin his whole life. Okay, actually, he translated into Spanish uh, Calvin's Institute or Institutes of the Christian mm-hmm. Religion. And he wrote about a 12-page introduction to it. And if you read that, he has even a lot of history of the group in Seville and in Valladolid and things about what the Catholic Church was doing and teaching at that time that is just a, a, a goldmine of historical information. So so let's get a little bit back background on these mm-hmm. men that you're talking okay. about. These were both monks, uh, Catholic monks, who were from the Kingdom of Seville, which at that time covered what what is today the province of Seville, um, uh, part of the province of Huelva, and up a little bit into what is the province of Badajoz, these three provinces in Spain, in the southwestern section of Spain. And they were both uh, from that area of of Seville. Um, It's possible that uh, they, uh, or at least uh, Casiodoro, he was from a uh, a Jewish uh, convert background. His parents had probably been Jews that when Ferdinand and Isabel ordered the mm. Jews to convert to Catholicism in 1492, and anyone who didn't convert, they got kicked out of Spain. Oh, well, wow. his his parents might have been what they call conversos. They they had converted to uh, Catholicism as Jews, oh, and wow. so um, uh, uh, Casiodoro he would have been raised as a Catholic, and he actually went to the University of Seville and studied in Seville. And on his the only image we have of Casiodoro comes from the church in Frankfurt that he pastored before he died, like seventy years later. Um, and it's an image of him, and underneath it has his um, his um, not his titles because he didn't have any titles, but it just says he's uh, Casiodoro. Uh, a Spaniard from Seville, and he he says that in Latin. You know, I'm I'm Casiodoro uh, de Reina, a Spanish Sevillano or a Spanish civilian, but it's in Latin, and mm-hmm. and that's very important because he's identifying himself with Seville and the and the group, uh, the Reformation uh, Church group of believers that was in Seville, scattered around the city in different house churches and groups. Um, and so he, when he finished, uh, when he was around 20-something, he, he uh, um, entered into the monastery in Santi Ponce to study because they were, um, they were um, Augustinian monks who studied Scripture, and he wanted to study Scripture. And, and, and the, the Reformation ideas came into the monastery. Um, one of the, or some of the main leaders there converted, and they began teaching it, and most of the monks converted, like 90% of them. And, oh, wow. and Cipriano de Valera was younger than Casio. He was like 15 years younger. And he had also studied in in the University of Seville, and he came into the monastery around probably um, 1552 or something like that. He was Mm. only in it for four or five years before they had to flee. And Mm. so in 1557 is when they flee, when when the Inquisition arrests everyone in Valladolid and gets ready to burn them at the stake. that's when the monks began to say, we better leave, you know, and so over a period of a few months so that they wouldn't raise uh, suspicion of the inquisitors, they all uh, came up with different reasons why they had to go somewhere outside of Seville to uh, visit uh, another monastery for some purpose of study or for some purpose of teaching or whatever, but uh, they, they wound up leaving. But before that, uh, Casiodoro, he was one of the few of the monastery that would go into Seville and teach the gospel and and try to build up the believers. He had a very uh, strong pastoral call, mm. and I wrote an article on this. It's uh, 
about Casiodoro de Reina as a pastor teacher. That was his vocation. That was his calling. And that's why he wanted to translate the Bible into Spanish so that the Spanish believers could read the word of God like Correctly. he was reading it because he knew Greek and he yeah. knew Hebrew and he could read it in the, but, but Spanish people couldn't. And yeah. he wanted them to get it. They couldn't even read it in Latin in the Vulgate, wow. but he wanted to do it from the original Greek and Hebrew and put it in Spanish, Castilian Spanish, so that the average Spaniard, kind of what uh, William Tyndale did for the for the English, you know, when he told that bishop, you know, the story, maybe you don't, but William Tyndale said that uh, um, some bishop said, oh, you know, you're, you're making a mistake translating the word of God. And he said, no, no. He says, I'm going to make this so that in the future, any, you know, shepherd boy or any, you know, uh, dairy girl will know the word of God better than, than, than you guys in the corrupt, you know, church or something like that. It's, it's a famous <laughs> saying from William yeah, yeah. Tyndale. Well, that's what Cassiodoro wanted to have that kind of of a, of a thing happened with people who spoke Spanish in Spain because his burden was for all the Spanish people to come to know Christ, mm. to come to know what the gospel really says. And they couldn't do that because they couldn't read Latin, they couldn't read Hebrew, they couldn't read Greek, and there was no translations in Spanish. And it was wow. illegal. It was a Catholic church that said it's illegal to translate the Bible into the vernacular language. You has to be just the Vulgate. And, and what was the purpose in that for them to say it was illegal to do it in Spanish. What was the reason behind it? Well, not just Spanish. It was illegal to do it in Italian, Portuguese, French, English, whatever. And every time someone did, like William Tyndale, they went after him and, and you know, uh, murdered him. Yeah, <laughs> they yeah. took him out of the way. Well, the reason they did that is because that way they can keep the control, control. over mm. what people believe. And if, and if you, like, so like if they say, no, a priest can't be married. And then you read what Timothy, or what Paul writes to Timothy and Titus about mm. how uh, a, a, an elder, a, a, a bishop, elder, you know, the word uh, uh, episcopos, and and and, uh, and it's the same uh, pastor elder uh, bishop is the same uh, person biblically speaking and he says has to be a husband of one wife has to raise his kids this way and they would say wait a minute I thought you know the guys who run the church the bishops and the cardinals and all they can't be married but here the Bible says they're supposed to be married yeah because if you don't know how to handle your family how can you handle the church those those kind of things yeah. so they began to see it but the the Catholic Church has this superstructure that had been set up over centuries and if people had gotten uh, you know, an understanding that all these different sacraments and stuff like that are not biblical and the whole house of cards comes tumbling down, they would lose everything they had. So like oh. the Pharisees did with Jesus, yeah. we don't want to lose what we've got. So yeah. we better get rid of this guy out of the way. Yeah. They said, we don't want people to know what the Bible says. So it's illegal to publish it. And only the, the priests and the scholars could, uh, you know, access it in Latin. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, so, um, where do we go now? Okay. Uh, we're uh, with Casio. We're at Casio, yeah. Okay, so Casiodoro and, and Cipriano and the others have fled from Seville. Uh, they've gone up into northern Europe. They have different um, things that happen. Cipriano stayed with uh, Calvin in the Calvinistic ministry and and, and translated into Spanish the institutes. Um, uh, Casiodoro went to England. And he uh, became a pastor in London for about five years. And then he was falsely accused. The spies from the Inquisition were trying to slander him and get rid of him because mm. of all the problems he was causing. And so they, they accused him of some false accusations. He had to leave London uh, to defend himself because it looked like he was going to be arrested. He was actually receiving a pension from Queen Elizabeth as oh, a wow. minister because that she was in favor of helping the Ref 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 Reformation uh, pastors who were escaping from Catholicism because she, um, her half sister was uh, Bloody Mary, you know. Yeah. And so, um, anyway, a lot of things get mixed in here. <laughs> but to make long story short, 
uh, he had to leave London. So he goes back over onto the continent and he, he goes around between the Low Countries and France and um, Frankfurt, Germany, and then finally gets to Switzerland. And during all these movements around, he's dragging his family with him, his wife, his kids. Um, he's trying to translate the Bible from Hebrew, um, and he has one of the best translations in Spanish from the Hebrew uh, scriptures. Um, even though he followed, uh, uh, he used what was called the Biblia de Ferrara. That's a Jewish translation of the Old Testament that was done by a duke in Italy, and it's a very important manuscript in studying uh, Old Testament translations. But they were so they um, w- they didn't know Hebrew very well, even mm. though they were Jewish. They didn't know biblical Hebrew, and so they did a very wooden translation. And Castellaro corrected a lot of that stuff. So his his Old Testament translation was was excellent. And because of all the running around and stuff, like I said earlier, he had to uh, use uh, Juan Perez and, and Francisco de Encinas's, he had to use their New Testaments to help him finish and get it to the publisher on time. Mm. And even Juan Perez left in his will, he bequeathed a huge sum of money to Cassiodoro to publish the Bible in Spanish. Wow. And so when he gets to Basel, Switzerland, he finally gets someone that published it. And in 1569, the Bear Bible, the Biblia del Oso, was published and there was 2,500 copies published. And today there's only about 50 that still exist. And oh, in Spain, really? I think there's only like three or four in Spain. All the others are in, you know, Oxford and Cambridge and up in Germany and places like that. But in Spain, the original La Biblia de los there's like 50. Bible re- of the Bear. Yeah, right. the Bear Bible. The Bear and, Bible. And you can you can actually go to these places and you can, you know, look at it. And if they, you know, put gloves on so you don't get the, you know, oils, oils from your yeah. fingers on the pages and stuff. But you can actually go. And I, I know uh, people... Uh, that work with me teaching at the seminary that have actually handled an original wow, bear Bible, bear Bible up wow. in Oxford or one of these places. And it's like, you know, it's like, Ooh, it's, you know, it's this awesome thing. So he published it. And then, uh, and then he wound up becoming a pastor in Frankfurt, which was a, what's called a free city. So he got the citizenship of that city and he pastored a Lutheran church there until he died. Wow. Um, and then he died in, I think it was 1590 something. And his, old companion Cipriano they had always kept in touch through all the years and everything uh, he had done a revision of some of the minor mistakes and other you know um, grammatical or, or um, vocabulary errors that that he felt um, Cassiodoro had made because he was also these guys were all in biblical languages and and they spoke like Spanish French English you know I mean they were just uh, it's wow. incredible well Cipriano did the first, what's called the first revision in 1602, and it's called the Biblia del Cantaro, and that would be like the the water pitcher, because there's mm. a picture of a lady pouring the water of life, you know, la, the the agua viva or whatever, and it's got a verse from that. So so there's the the bear Bible and the the water pitcher Bible, so right. the Biblia del so the the Biblia del Cantaro, and and that second one in 1602 that Cipriano published, and and he did it as like a, a uh, I don't know how to say this in English, an homenaje. What's that in English? Like a, a tribute. He did mm. as a tribute to Cassiodoro because they had been uh, companion monks in Seville mm. and then they had had to flee together and they had been to get, I mean, they had been in contact for all. And Cipriano went on to be a professor at, at, at Oxford and Cambridge and he finally died in, in, in the United, in, uh, in what's England. He, he yeah. stayed there his whole life. So he did this revision and that's why the Bible in Spanish for like 400 years, the only Spanish Bible was the Reina Valera version. And okay. that was because it was based on Reina's original and the way that, uh, Cipriano Valera had, had, uh, um, 
not corrected it, but uh, revised it to, okay. ma- you know, to, to make the corrections. And so when that came out for, from 1602 until like after World War II, <laughs> yeah. the only Spanish Bible available was, you know, the Reina Valera for Protestants. Now, the Catholic Church, finally, at the end of the 18th century, they did a Spanish translation of the Bible based on the Vulgate, not on the Greek and not Hebrew. Greek. So, yeah. so we have the we got the Bear Bible, mm-hmm. okay, and then we have the, the water uh, pitcher, the water pitcher Bible, and then we have the Reina Valera, or what's well, the actually word? no the the, the, the the Biblia de Cantaro, the the water pitcher one. Okay, okay, that's the Reina Valera. Okay. okay, okay, but that's the one that was continued. And it wasn't until the 19th century they did a revision of it in the 18. 18- 60s or the 1880s in Spain, Spanish evangelicals in what's known as the Second Reformation. And I'll I'll get into that in just a second. Because in Spain, there were these two reformations, one in the 16th century and one in the 19th. Okay, Because during the 17th and 18th, the Inquisition just kept everything so locked down, there was hardly any any activity. But until like uh, uh, the 1860s or so... um, they, they don't do the Bible societies that were started in England and Germany and places like that. They began to, uh, I mean, they used the Reina Valera translation in Spain and in other countries in Latin America. That's why the Reina Valera Bible in, in, in Mexico and all the way down to Chile and Ar- Argentina, that was the only translation uh, in Spanish that they, that, that the Protestant missionaries had. Got it. Okay. And so the, the, the main, the biggest revision was done by a guy in Andalusia and his name was, um, um, uh, I'm trying to figure it now. Lorenzo de Lucena. Lorenzo de Lucena. He was from a town in Cordoba, the province of Cordoba. It's called Lucena. And he did the first revision in like 1880-something, okay? And that was used up until uh, the 1909 uh, revision, which mm. is a very famous one for the Reina Valera, the Reina Valera of 1909, mm. and that one lists, uh, lasted until the 1960, 60. which is what everybody what uses now, and now they've done two more, and they just came out with one last year in Spain, uh, or maybe it was in 2020 for the um, anniversary of the publication of the uh, Bear Bible in, or, or no, it was for uh, the birth of Cassiodoro in, in 1520, oh, wow. and so for the 500th anniversary of his birth, they re- re-edited it, the, what they call the Reina Valera Bible, but it's um, it's not based now on the manuscripts that um, that Reina and Valera used. It's not even following the language of the 1960 version, which the 1995 revision did follow. Mm. But um, this one is a totally... It's a totally new Reina Valera, um, and it's uh, it's it's hardly getting known because the 1960 version is still the most popular one. Yeah, wow. That, that's... That's that's pretty cool because uh, you know I don't I don't I don't know if people even our listeners in this town who come into Bridge Ministry who ask for Reina Valera uh, Spanish Bible know the history how it came about. Yeah, they they don't, and even most believers in Spain. Um, you know, I mean, the evangelical church in Spain is very small. Out of 47 million people, there's probably less than 400,000 evangelicals. Wow. It's like a 0.7 percent of the population. Wow, and most of those don't even know anything about the history of the Reina Valera Bible. I think when they buy it, most of them probably don't even read the few pages at the front that explains where it comes from and all that kind of stuff that, you know, it would be very helpful to know yeah. just that. And there's just a lot of ignorance, historical ignorance among 
uh, Spanish Christians, like there is among Christians everywhere. Yeah, I mean, yeah. most English-speaking Christians, they don't know all the history of the of the Protestant Reformation and mm. things about William Tyndale and all the you know the history of the of the English Bible yeah. with uh, Coverdale and the Bishop's Bible and the Geneva Bible and all that stuff. They don't they don't know that. Yeah. And so, yeah. But hey, this is why we need teachers. We need professors because yeah, yeah. uh, we can't forget about history. You yeah. know, uh, right now uh, we're doing a thirty thousand few feet overview on church history right. uh here on tuesday nights wow um and i wish i could be here to help you with it but <laughs> yeah, I, can't, I would so love to can't, have you can't, can't clone myself you know? <laughs> yeah. but oh i just yeah i mean i'm passionate about teaching history so i i I, I I can see it i love it um i, I would i would love to sit in one of your classes for yeah. sure um so um this is going on in spain can we just shift a little bit right now and we can get back right. to spain uh what is what does the world look like now in Mexico? We know Mexico, Central America, South America. Uh, you just mentioned that uh, there were Protestant missionaries who right. were down there, right. uh, had the Bible. But I mean, r- there's still Catholicism mm-hmm. just reigning supreme, right? Uh, in well, and that's that's because the Spanish crown. Uh, gave full control to the Inquisition, not only in Spain, but in all the Spanish Empire. Mm. And so from Spain all the way to the Philippines, you had the Inquisitors controlling what was going on, and that lasted all the way up until like 1836. Wow. Okay? Which is when the Inquisition was done away with. Okay? Wow. And that was ha- that uh, was in Spain. They did away with the Inquisition. So... Um, it, it was it was very it was very complicated. You know, I, I mentioned earlier there was the what they call the first Reformation in the 16th century with guys like Reina Valera and the others, which didn't really it wasn't really successful in keeping the reformed ideas and the access to the Bible in Spain like it did in England and France mm. and Germany and all these other places. And so um, for two centuries, for the 17th, 18th century, there's almost nothing happening in Spain. But then in the 19th century, you get these um, Bible Society missionaries coming from uh, England, from Germany, from Switzerland, from France, trying to bring the gospel into Spain and w- and starts what's called the Second Reformation. And there's mm. some debate about that title as well because um, I, I won't get into that. I believe it's a correct title. Um, but anyway, they bring the, 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 the Reign of Valera Bible back in. They bring the scriptures back in. They start founding evangelical churches, which uh, still exist. And, and so from the middle of the um, 19th century until today, the evangelical church, whatever it is, Baptist, Presbyterian, independent, uh, you know, all the Lutheran, whatever, they, they still exist in Spain since the middle of the 19th century. They, the, even under Franco, the dictatorship of Franco after the Spanish Civil War in 1936 and, um, and World War II, Franco locked down Spain. It was illegal to have Protestant churches. It was illegal to put up a sign on the outside, this is a, you know evangelical church. All that was illegal. You couldn't hand out tracts. You would get wow. fined, put in jail. And so for like 30 years, 40 years, it was very difficult, but the, the church still survived and it didn't disappear. And so today there's probably, uh, I think they say, uh, around 3000 evangelical churches in Spain mm. that of all the different denominations and groups and, um, about 400,000, uh, believers. And if they add in the non-Spanish Protestants, like Germans and Swedes who retire and move to Spain to live in the, on the Mediterranean coast, they say there's up to a million Protestants in Spain. But as far as like Spanish speaking evangelicals, I, I would estimate there's around maybe three to 400,000, um, in Spain right now, which is less than 1% of the population. So it seems like Spain really had a tight control on, on everything right. for being such a big empire right. and be able to have this had all this in check. Right. I mean, I mean, I'm just thinking logistically 
how many people you have to hire to do these spy. Well, well they at one point had over 100,000 um, missionaries from Spain who were Franciscans and Dominicans and, and Salesianos and all these other different monastic orders who were out in the empire teaching Catholicism and following what's, uh, well, the Catholic reaction to all this was also in the 16th century, and that happened at what's called the Council of Trent in mm, Italy, yeah. and that established the doctrinal basis for what is today modern Catholicism. Mm. That's very anti-Protestant, and even uh, though the Catholic Church doesn't focus on that very much, it's still there. They've never done away with it. They've never renounced it, and those guys came up with all these anathemas on anyone who believes in justification by faith, you're anathema. If you believe this, you're anathema. You believe you know, it just went down the line. Yeah. Whatever the 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 five um, solas of the Reformation, you know, sola scriptura, sola, Christus, yeah, sola, yeah, all that. Day. All right, all those are anathematized wow. by the Council of Trent, yeah. and um, and so uh, that was their reaction, and that's why the Inquisition was so strong. And they have what's called the Counter Reformation, where they actually tried from the Spanish Empire to keep Protestantism from getting into the people in Latin America, in the Philippines, in Spain, and, and they just shut it down. And, and it wasn't until the late, 19, or the late 18th century, early 19th century, that, that British and German and other missionaries start getting into some of the Latin countries like Mexico and Argentina because there was commerce and trade. And at different times, the British and the Spanish were allies. Other times, they were enemies. Yeah. And the same thing with the Germany and stuff. So, um, But it's, they start bringing it in, and they start getting the Bible in, and it, and it just takes off very slowly. And even by 1900, probably in Latin America, in almost every one of the Latin American countries, you had less than 1% of the population were, would be considered believers. And, um, and, and now in the 20th century, uh, that just has taken off, especially when um, the Pentecostal missionaries started going to Latin America in the early 20th century and, um, you know, uh, working with people who were marginalized and poor and whatnot. And even though I'm not Pentecostal and I don't agree with some of their things, um, they did a, a very uh, tremendous job of spreading the gospel and people came to know Christ. And now, you know, in some countries in Latin America, Brazil and some of these other, it's like 25% of the population are evangelicals. And most of those would be uh, from a Pentecostal or neo-Pentecostal background. But there's still a large number, 10, 15% of all evangelicals are from um, uh, backgrounds that would be more Reformed theology, more mm -hmm. traditional uh, positions on the gifts, on the sign, you know, the, the, the spiritual gifts and things like that. So, um, but... But in Spain, that didn't even happen until after Franco died in 1975. So, so, so you, you see Spain, the growth of evangelicals in the 19th century, what was the Second Reformation. By 1900, there was maybe 6,000 evangelicals in Spain out of a population of 20-some million. There was 6,000 in about 100 churches. And then by the time Franco takes over... Uh, during the, the Spanish Civil War, that had doubled to like 24, 25,000 evangelicals in maybe 300 churches. And when Franco died, that was still the same. There was about 300 churches, but now there was about 30,000 evangelicals. And from the time he died until today, you've gone from about 300 churches to 3,000, and you've gone from about 30,000 to three or 400,000. So in just less than 50 years, you've had a, like a 10% growth rate every year, something like that. It's just, it's incredible. So 46 years, this is just, that's not a long time. No. So, the, so there's a lot of work to be done in oh, Spain. Yeah, you can't imagine. There's more Christians in India than there are in Spain. I mean, it's wow. Just, it's just, or even in these communist countries. I had a friend of mine who, he works in Cuba. He's a, an evangelical missionary based out of Dallas. And he's done, I don't know, 50 campaigns in Cuba. And they came to Seville. 
like 20 years ago to do a campaign. Mm. And they went door to door in this town. They were in a big town, uh, 35,000 people. And they went door to door for a couple of weeks and they preached on the town plaza and they had bands and they had people sharing their testimony. And they had Cuban evangelists that came and preached in perfect Spanish. And, you know, ah. and when they were all done and they tallied up how many people trusted in Christ, there were six. Mm. And he told me, he said, Frank, he goes, we go to the, you know, we'll go to the, you know, the USSR. We go to, you know, Tajikistan. We go to Ukraine. We go to Cuba. We do a campaign. We get 500, 600, 700 decisions for Christ. We go to Seville, we get six. And I said, yeah. And I said, and you have to wait a couple of years to see if those six stay faithful to Christ. Cause yeah. they may have made a decision and not really, it yeah. wasn't a real one. I said, yeah. but so. if they were real, if they were real mm -hmm. uh, conversion and then, and, and we, we hope that they are. And, mm -hmm. and, yeah. you know, we know that, you know, heaven and the angels rejoice by just one sinner becoming right. to repentance. So it's not about numbers. It's is not, it? it's and, not. And, 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 but, Obviously, there's something going on in Spain. Yeah. Uh, there's something going on in South America with mm -hmm. just uh, even uh, j just a teaching of reformed theology, right. just, uh, just solid biblical teaching just yeah, in yeah, general yeah. Right. Uh, that's going on. And, and a lot of that makes sense as you're telling history here right. of why here even in Laredo uh, – you know, this is a, a a ninety something percentile Catholic town. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and you know, for our Christians here locally, can have stories, uh, difficulties pouring in into their Catholic families. Mm -hmm. You know, and just that tension that's there. And I'm just thinking how much influence Spain, mm -hmm. as an empire, just had on a continent. You know, and just other parts of the world, like right. you were just saying, to the Philippines, right. and that it still has its grip. Right. You know, uh, I mean, we can see it here, right. uh, and and I'm just like, wow. Yeah. But man, there for for our listeners, Spain. Yeah. There you go. We, we need some help over there. Oh yeah, yeah. There's a tremendous need in Spain and any of the 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 Mediterranean countries. Uh, Portugal is not really Mediterranean, but it's it's the cultures linked closely to Spain because it's the Iberian Peninsula, mm. but. And Portugal has a much greater percentage of population that's evangelical, um, probably five times the amount than in Spain. And it's wow. a smaller country. It's only got 10, 10 or 12 million people. Spain has 47 million. So it's like four times larger, but it has only like one, you know, one, one fifth of the evangelicals that Portugal has. Wow. But then you've got uh, France, which is not only Catholic in the traditional uh, part of the society, but then it's atheist, secular atheist in the more modern part of the society. So mm. France is a whole nother story. They need to, and then you've got uh, Italy obviously still needs the gospel. They have less than 1% believers in Italy. Yeah. Uh, uh, Greece with the Greek Orthodox church, which is kind of a Catholic version of, mm. you know, under Orthodox. And that was a whole nother story in church history there. But um, uh, there's just a tremendous need. Yeah. We we have a friend who had a who has a friend uh, who was in Italy. Uh, she was uh, doing some mission works out there. She moved recently back to the states, but she said uh, my our friend was telling her that she said it is very very difficult to yeah. be a missionary in Italy yeah. with the whole catholic thing right. that just goes on it's, there and it's difficult there's a lot of spiritual warfare aspect to it without going off the you know deep end of yeah, the yeah, demon yeah. behind every bush i'm yeah, not yeah. i'm not into the spiritual warfare movement I'm, yeah. and i've even you know written stuff against it because yeah. I, I think it was a, a mistake but um there's spiritual warfare that you have to take into account yes. there's isolation of missionaries that are in towns where and in spain you've got like ten thousand municipalities and only like uh, 1500 of them have evangelical churches wow. now some of those municipalities are small towns you know like a thousand people here up mm. in the mountains 
mountain somewhere, but there's no evangelical church. There's no way to get the gospel to them. How's that going to happen? You know. Mm. And so for many years, the 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 churches in Spain have worked to try to say every town of at least a population of five thousand or more, we want to try and get an evangelical church in it. And now I think it's down to where there's less than a hundred and some towns in Spain with a population of five thousand or more that don't have an evangelical church. All the others have been covered. So so it's. Um, uh, you know, there's a lot of work to be done, but yeah, so what is, and I don't want to get off, but okay. you know, what, but I, I think it's important, especially that, you know, especially as a ministry, we're all, we are all about mission. Mm-hmm. We're in a border town, right. you know, there are challenges that we experience right. here as we try to share biblical truth right. to the people of Laredo. What are some of the challenges that you are experiencing in Spain as 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 a well probably similar to the ones you have here okay. where where many of the people from a Catholic background Roman Catholic background they would say as you try to share the gospel with them oh that's a cult wow you know or they would say oh that's an American religion that's not our religion you know wow or they would say if I go that way I'm going to be a traitor to my family to my history to my country. You know, and so, so those are the things that you, you have people telling you that. And I've had people tell me to my face in our town where we have for the, the, we're in a small town of 12,000 people, but around us, there are three or four other towns and the total population is about 50,000. And there's one Jehovah's witness kingdom hall for all that population. And one day I was evangelizing and I was, and this guy on the street tried to tell me, oh, you're just a Jehovah's witness. I said, wait a minute. I go, why would I be a Jehovah's witness? If they're up on the other end of town with their own building, that's called a kingdom hall. And I'm down here on this side of town with an evangelical church. And I said, that's, that doesn't make sense. Oh, it's all the same. You're all cults. And that was his reaction because if you're not Roman Catholic, you're a cult. And, and they don't even understand the difference between Catholics, Orthodox, Coptic, Anglican, Protestant. I mean, it's just for them, anything outside the Catholic church, suspicious, it's a cult. Don't, don't have anything to do with it. And so it's very difficult. And, and when people uh, convert to Christ, they have a lot of pressure from their families to, you know, to give it up. You've gotten sucked into a cult. You know, they've, they've brainwashed you. They've this, they've that. And uh, it's, it's, just, it's just hard, yeah, especially wow. in the smaller towns, which is where there's the fewer number of evangelical churches. You're in a big city like Seville, Madrid, Barcelona, Valencia, Malaga, and you're in those big cities where there's hundreds of thousands of people. You know, you can go to an evangelical church and nobody's going to say it. But if you're in a small town, everybody sees where you're going. They say, wow. And they start talking. Look at so-and-so. They're, they're going to that place. Oh, man, they're in that cult. And the family gets embarrassed. And and, it just, and I'm sure that's some of the stuff that happens here in Laredo with people from a, a Roman Catholic background whose family roots go way back in the history of Laredo or way back into, you know, Mexico. And it's like, oh, you're betraying your great-grandparents and you're betraying everything we are, you know. And, and it's got to be tough because it's tough for Spaniards. You yeah. know? And I've had people tell me in my face, this is an American religion. And I use history. I say, well, look, they weren't burning Americans at the state in Seville in the 16th century. Who are they burning? And they kind of stop. And they, I go, you heard about the Spanish Inquisition, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. I was like, well, who do you think they were burning? They weren't. They were burning evangelicals because this is not an American religion. This was here in Spain 500 years ago. Wow. And that just blows them out of the water. Yeah. Yeah. It makes them think. Like, mm-hmm. hold on Exactly, a exactly. This couldn't be. There, there's history rooted. Yep. Wow. Well, uh, Dr. Benoit, uh, thank you for coming on. You're welcome. Um Please, our listeners, please pray for uh, the people in Spain. That uh, I, I we, we know that Lord has His people there, and again, uh, pray for missionaries to go out there. Uh, but before we uh, land this plane on this podcast, right. can you please share the right. gospel okay. to our worldwide audience today? All right. I'll be happy to. I, I I just you know basically the gospel is just. 
put your faith in Christ and what he did on the cross. And, uh, you know, it says, uh, Paul said to the Corinthians, he goes, I gave to you what was of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. He was buried and he raised again the third day, according to the scriptures. And that if you have your faith in him, you're saved. And so when the Philippian jailer asked, you know, what do I do to be saved? Paul said, you know, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Mm. And so, I, I mean, when we share the gospel, we would say, you know, don't believe in the church, not even the evangelical church. Don't believe in the Catholic church. You don't need to, a church can't save you. The only one who can save you is Jesus Christ. He's the only one who died for, for your sins. He was your substitute. And I mean, we, we preach the substitutionary atonement, even though that's fallen out of favor in some circles as well. But I really believe mm. that people need to put their faith in Christ, like, uh, like the Bible says, and trust in him for their eternal destiny. And they need to turn from their unbelief or belief in idols or anything else and turn to Jesus and have all their faith 100% only in Christ because that's what the Bible says. He's, he's the one that made it exclusive. He said, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And that makes him exclusively the only way to salvation. And I, we tell this to people that are Muslim, Buddhist, whatever. We say, look, you know, those guys all had good teachings in one way or another. They were, you know, we're, we're not down, trying to bash them, but they didn't die for your sins. And yeah. Jesus did. And yeah. I said, so, you know, and Jesus is the one who said, you know, and Paul, Peter preached it, Acts chapter 412. He said, there's no other name given among men under heaven by which we must be saved. It's the name of Jesus. And it's, so we need to come to Christ. That's the only way to be saved. And you, and I would tell people, if you don't, if you haven't made a decision to trust in Christ, you need to, you know, uh, turn around, which is what the Bible means for repent. You go, yeah. You're going one way, you're going away from Christ, you're going on the broad road. Jesus said there's two roads, the narrow and the broad. The broad road goes to destruction, goes to hell, goes to an eternity separated from God, and the narrow road, which is the way of the cross, that goes to Christ, that goes to eternal life, reconciliation with God, forgiveness of your sins, and you can only get that through Jesus because he's the way, not a way, not the best way, he's the way, mm -hmm. the truth, and the life. And if anyone wants eternal life and to be forgiven and be right with God. It's only through Jesus and you have to do it through Christ. That's the only way. And I, I mean, that's not using a four spiritual laws or a, you know, Romans road plan, <laughs> but that's what I would tell people. You've got to trust in Christ. You've got to trust in Christ. Amen guys. For our listeners out there, today is the day. Yeah. Amen. Today is the day. Um, so Dr. Benoit, where can people find you if you want to be found uh, either on social media, a website, any articles? Uh, I know you've written several books uh, yeah. like uh, Not by Ignorance, An Explanation by Cessationism. Uh, so the floor is yours. Well, they can look it up on Amazon okay. uh, with with my name. I don't know when you when you put this up on your blog, if it'll have. The, you know, the text of my name written in mm -hmm. there so they can do that. Um, I, during the, um, the lockdown in Spain for the pandemic, we had a YouTube channel that we had to open so okay. that our church, we could uh, post uh, the sermons during the, the three months we were locked down. And there's only about 15 or so sermons on there that we did at that time. But um, that's, um, you know, that's a YouTube channel. They can put Dr. Frank Benoit and it should pull it up. And they, and that's in Spanish though. So I'm sorry for these are our English listeners. Oh, but, no, that's okay. But, but we got uh, a lot of bilingual people. Well, so. <laughs> they can listen to the Spanish sermons in the book of Colossians. Cause that's what we were doing at that time. Mm -hmm. And there's about 15 sermons on there awesome. and that's it. And when, when we, when the lockdown ended, we stopped taping it because then the people were able to come, come back and listen church, to me at church. And we just don't, didn't have the means to do, you know, a big audio video, uh, ministry. We just, we just, and so we, we just did that for that time. Okay. Um, um, but there's links on there to some other interviews I've, I've done about the book and it tells you how to get it on Amazon. Um, you can also get it at CBD or Barnes and Noble, any of those online places. And if people want to get some more information though, mm -hmm. on the Spanish reformation, right. Uh, 
Where would you tell them to go if you have any books that you've written on the topics? Well, I I don't have any books that are published on it. I've done okay. I've I've taught on the Spanish at the seminary uh, outside of Seville. I've done conferences. I'm in a historical society in Seville that we've for about the last five years we've we've written articles and done conferences mm-hmm. on it. Um, there is some good books on it. I would tell them just get a um, Justo Gonzalez's uh, History of Christianity that is available. He's got a, a chapter on the Spanish Reformation, mm. and that's helpful. He's got okay. a lot of good information. It's just a broad overview. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's better than nothing. Well, I I think if you get an opportunity, you should write a book about this because <laughs> uh, I think it would sell. Especially yeah. as you know, we we can we can talk about see if Bridge Publishing can right. uh, can get that under their right. uh, under the label. But I, again, this is something that uh, I I was definitely uh, ignorant about and got. I was amazed at just getting a little mm-hmm. piece of history today. Yeah. So again, thank you for coming right. on, and uh, and and I hope that you come back. Right, uh, we can do this over Zoom too. Well, we can do yeah. other subjects over Zoom. So. I would be. Ha- I mean, <laughs> the two interviews I did for uh, Radio Faro de Gracia, which mm-hmm. was the one that interviewed me for my book, the first time it was published four years ago, and the, and then last year when it came out here in the states. Mm-hmm. Um, I did it from Spain. Okay. Uh, on uh, one was on Zoom, and then one was on another. Uh, no, it was on Zoom. It was on Skype the first time four years ago, and then this last time it was on some other Vimeo or something like yeah, that. Yeah. I don't. But but I, yeah, I can do it from Spain. Awesome. I'll be back in Spain in May. Yeah. Because I come here only every four or five years. Okay. And so um, the next time I'm back in Laredo, uh, if Christ doesn't come before then to take us away, <laughs> yeah, right. I'll be I'll be back here hopefully in about four years, well, and I'd be happy to do it. But right, by, oh, by 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 uh, internet we can do it. Yeah, internet, or we can come visit you out in Spain. Hey, uh, you, know. yeah. you can come see the seminary. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and uh, so, Yeah, we can see the bullfighting and all that. Uh, the running of the bulls. Where yeah. is, is that in Seville? Uh, we have, in our town, actually, we have a running of the bulls. They okay. don't do it in Seville. Okay. Not every town does that, that it. I mean, the most famous one's up north in Pamplona. In the kingdom of Navarra. Okay. Um, and that's the one that Ernest Hemingway did and everybody knows. That's when they know. But it's it's in other towns around Spain. It's not Good. a big thing. I'd say less than 10% okay. of the towns do it. And there's an anti- uh, Taurino movement, you know, to stop bullfighting because it's considered cruel and unusual Usual. for the yeah. animals and stuff. Right. And so, um, you know, we don't know mo- most believers that I know, they wouldn't go to a bullfight because of that. And, yeah. and you might read Augustine's uh, confessions where he was going to see the gladiators fight in the Colosseum or something and he got felt guilty about doing that. Mm, <laughs> so yeah, so kind, of that kind of thing. Cool. <laughs> well, thank you for coming on. You're welcome. And uh, ho- we'll hopefully have you back soon. Another time. Another time. More than more than happy to help. All right. All right. God bless you. All right. You too. Thank you. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that concludes this week's episode with Dr. Frank Benoit. We appreciate Dr. Frank uh, joining us in studio. Uh, Again, all the information that we got about the Spanish uh, Reformation, uh, just absolutely amazing. uh, ladies and gentlemen, make sure you go out and just the uh, um, resources that uh, Dr. Uh, Benoit said. If you're interested in learning more on this subject, uh, I was trying to encourage him to possibly write a book in the future. Uh, and I hope uh, he does. But uh, uh, Lord willing, in, in his time, if a guy puts that in his heart. Um, well, thank you for joining us. Like we always like to end the show. What is your only comfort in life and in death that I am not my own but belong body and soul? in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Till next week, guys.